listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the most difficult things that we do typically as we begin our practice is the bow. Westerners have a real hard time with the bow because it usually implies that it there's a subservience or that there is uh, submission. And while submission and subservience actually can be helpful in this process, it doesn't mean that you deny all that is great and glorious in you. In fact, when we bow to another person, what really is behind that bow is a recognition of all that is holy in the other. And that which is holy in the other is precisely what is holy within us. So when we bow to another deeply from an authentic place within us, what are we really doing? We're bowing to what is great in us as well as them. We're saluting ourselves when we bow. So much of this work is about recognizing how we contract into those spaces in us that want to control, into those places in us that feel continually like we're a victim, in those places in us that are always trying to fix everything, in the places in us that are always seeking for more. That's usually how the human lives. And they typically don't awaken to anything beyond that framework. And this work is to do exactly that. It's to actually recognize what it means not to continually seek. It means to recognize what all these things that are continually moving are doing when they are doing them. And that still presence in us that is infinite, that infinite heart and infinite mind can actually, we can consciously source behavior from that place that's open. It's not about resting in that infinity and then staying there. You become like a spiritual uh, couch potato, cushion potato or something, you know, you just kind of zone out. That's not the work. The work is to recognize that, that in us which is infinite, the infinite heart and infinite mind, and then bring that back down the mountain into all in us that wants to control everything, all in us that feels victimized by the world and circumstance, all in us that seeks, all in us that tries to fix. We begin to let that aspect of ourselves become informed with something bigger and we then consciously walk through the world as something that is beyond what we've ever known. We begin to suture in every moment this wisdom and compassion. We begin to bow to the world without ever moving. 
or actually bowing. We just recognize the beauty in everything, even when it's not necessarily pretty. We start recognizing the teaching that is continually coming our way, even when we don't want to hear it. We don't want to pay attention to it. We don't want to see it. So a stillness practice like this one, which kind of uses you know, some Zen and kind of uses some, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. But mostly it's like Zen inspired is what we say, just so we can give it a name and, you know, move on to the next conversation. This stuff is really very, very helpful in supporting the continual uncovering of that which is infinite. We uncover it continually, that which is infinite. That which is infinite begins to see itself, recognize itself, through our activity when we let it. There's nothing outside of infinity. There's nothing outside of an infinite mind or an infinite heart. Everything is within it. This means that everything is within each of us. Nothing is outside to threaten us. It's all within. And when we can adjust our relationship to all things that arise within, we participate differently. Instead of our intention for our life coming from a place that is kind of contracted, you know, it's all about control, we begin to intend our life from a place that is more expansive. Our activity that is contracted, we have a fancy Sanskrit name for it. It's called karma. Activity that is rooted or based in uh, a belief that we are separate from everything else, that we, we need to control and manage, right? We're like behind the, behind the bunker of uh, our ego's fortification. That is karma. That kind of karma, karma that comes from that place, leaves residual pain. It comes back. It comes back. Our activity that is based on me getting or me avoiding sticks with us. If our intention, on the other hand, is from an infinite spaciousness, it comes from that, literally, that place of love, that heals the world because it recognizes that the world itself is perfect. It gives us everything we need for awakening. It needs our tender loving care. It needs our support. It needs our activity and our participation, but it needs it to come from that place in us which is totally expansive as opposed to that in us which wishes it could control. That's the gift that happens when we participate in this kind of work with concentration, with purpose, with intention, and compassion, and love. It's not dry, it's really juicy. And so much of the time this can seem like very, very kind of dry, just, you know, okay, sit still and everything takes care of itself. Well, sure, to a degree, but there's so much passion, fun, smile, all this stuff is within a practice that can recognize the infinite 
help uncover the infinite that always already exists and then weaves that back into the life that we've already been building. And this is how we take care of the world. This is how we take care of ourselves and everybody else. And this is when we become the answer to prayer. We have 10 minutes and I would uh, I'd love to open it up for Q&A. Actually, if you have any questions, comments about how this experience was tonight. Yes, Sheila. I just want to say, I do remember doing that exercise before. Yes. And I enjoyed it just as much this time. As Did you? First time. It's, it's great. Isn't it interesting? Yes. And what all we do is simply ask that in us which is most manipulative, most cunning, to just, you'll be okay, just step over to the side here. And as long as it agrees, guess what? Everything becomes available. The only question I have is sure. becoming a non-seeker. If we, if we were non-seekers, none of us would be here. You're right. So guess what? That's why seeking is good. It's but what seeking does, this is a really great question because most seekers operate under the errant belief that if there was no seeking, there would be no awakening, so that there must always be a seeker, right? Well, actually what happens is the seeker uh, creates the structure from which it jumps. It's a form of divine suicide that, that occurs for the seeker to actually become its birthright, which is non-seeker. Instead of hitting the ground after it jumps, it flies. This might be a way to soften that metaphor a little bit. The ego really is what gets us here, right? All of our clinging, all of our pain, all of our, you know, whatever it is, it's like, you know, something, something's missing. So I better go check out this you know, meditation group or I better, better go check out this new church uh, you know, at the different congregation or whatever it happens to be. What we do when we participate at that level is we actually create the structure from which the ego then ultimately jumps. And what happens is the ego does not die our relationship to it changes radically. Its relationship to the self-system changes radically because it realizes that it's no longer in control of everything. It realizes that it can't control everything, but it's still there when needed. So instead of being you know, an 800-pound gorilla in our consciousness, it's uh, a rather... Um, uh, it's a tool. Yeah, it's a persnickety little little fourth grader is what what the ego begins to look like. And again, you're right. It becomes it becomes a tool through which we help build awakening for self and other. We no longer then get tooled by 
the ego when we can you know kind of rest in that expansion so it's a very very interesting little puzzle it gets us here but then we shed it as we move more deeply onward and and it does not want to be shed so you know, and that, that becomes kind of this very interesting war in spiritual practice you'll find with most people. They'll get into it. It's like, oh, this is so cool. And then they'll plateau because the next move is shedding that skin. It's changing the relationship with the separate sense of self. And once that finally happens, it's usually a big break. Boom. Then it goes, you know, it goes on to another level. So when we can incorporate infinite heart and infinite mind into this experience, Boom, we can. Maybe just being aware of these different people, that like, oh gosh, there's the fixer. You know, if you. That's enlightened mind. It. That's enlightened mind, is the one that recognizes it. That which can recognize these different aspects of the self system as playing around, you know? That in us which is victim. That in us which is, you know, always trying to make everything right. That in us which is trying to control. All of those things, the minute we can see them come up, that in us which recognizes them is not them. That in us which can recognize it without an evaluation, without saying, oop, there's, you know, there's my, uh, there's, there are my motherly instincts showing up again, or there's my, there's my victim showing up again. I hate that. See the difference? The I hate that is just another aspect. It, it fuels the victim. Because if there's self-loathing going on, then the victim has a job. Instead, if it's just like, oh, wow. Isn't cute? Yeah, that's kind of cute playing out there, right? A cute's even an evaluation, but still, it's just like, you know what I mean? It's a wow instead of a, or a uh-huh, as opposed to yuck. It's a big difference in our experience. But an awakened mind is one that is not caught by all of those aspects of being. An awakened mind is free. And since it is free, its choices are increased exponentially when it comes into living. Everything can become an appropriate response because we can consciously intend from this place that's not about contraction, but it's about holding the entire world in our embrace, our tender embrace, our infinite embrace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, while doing our, um, while doing our, our Dharma practice, how do we learn not to confuse our following that with the seeking just does that make sense like how, how do you how do you take kind of the seeking mind out of the experience of our dharma exploration exactly yeah the seeking mind will always feel resistance so to the extent that you feel resistance to something you can tell that that's egoic when there is non-resistance there's no ego mm -hmm. now having said that let the seeking mind guide you. There's nothing wrong with the seeking mind. It's going to take you continually exactly where you need to go. But what you need to, <laughs> where you need to go, no matter where it takes you, no matter where the seeking mind kind of puts you, 
you need to go here. You need to let go. Let go continually of whatever it shows you. So that the seeking mind will eventually hit up against, it will hit up against a wall, and that wall is the boundary of the self-system. We can call it the egoic boundary or whatever, okay? Our job is to continually uh, nurture a stillness practice because that wall is diminished in its thickness every time we meditate. Every time we meet up with stillness, stillness is what begins to take, take over more of who and what we are in a really conscious way than, uh, uh, than movement. Movement keeps that barrier thick and strong. Stillness weakens it. And so it's a very natural and spontaneous blast kind of through this boundary that happens. And you are then given an invitation in that moment. You're given an invitation. And the seeking mind at that point just kind of throws up its arms and says, ah, there might be a little bit of residual potency left in it and it'll keep you going. And that's fine. Use it. But remember, it's a tool. When you can use seeking mind as a tool, as opposed to getting tooled by seeking mind, you're in great shape. There's no resistance in that place. When it's a tool, it's no resistance. Thank you so much for coming tonight. It's great seeing all of you. Appreciate it.